Romans chapter 12 this morning. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Let's start reading in verse number 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let us pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, there's so many things here, so many things we could talk about. And I pray today You help our minds to be settled and concentrate and draw us down to just what You'd have for us today. pray You'd fill me with Your Spirit and help me today, Lord, to say only the things I should and uh, say them boldly and say nothing I ought not. I pray, Father, that uh, you just help this message to uh, accomplish your will. Lord, if there are unbelievers in our midst today, if there are those who don't know you as Savior, I pray that somewhere throughout they are attracted to the gospel and they want to know more. And, uh, Lord, they come to know you. And I pray that if there are Christians here today to whom some of these truths uh, really need to be applied to their heart, I pray that you'd help that to take place. Lord, it's a convicting passage. It convicts me. And I pray that all of us will think seriously about what you have to say to us today. Help us, Lord, to know how then we should live. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I always, when I come to a passage of Scripture, I like to try to come up with the theme for the passage and uh, concentrate everything around that. If you ever take a homiletics class or a preaching class, you'll find out that's one of the things that's key as you figure out what the key passage is, the theme of the passage, or the big idea of the passage, and everything about the sermon goes around that. Well, I don't know if you looked at this particular uh, bunch of verses right here, but every single verse has a different theme. Every single verse could be a sermon. We could spend, you know, however many, 15 or so uh, weeks on this particular passage and just preach one sermon on every verse. We're not going to do that. Uh, instead, we're just going to kind of look at this in a running commentary fashion. We're going to go down through here and look at these verses because every one of them is so important. And so today we'll just look at a couple of them, two or three of them, see how much time we have. Uh, but all of them, I think we will see answer the question, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? You know, in, in chapter 12, we've seen all throughout this in the couple weeks we've been in it, that Paul has been telling us how that wonderful fact of our justification by faith and of our salvation in Christ, how it should affect our lives. How should we live as born-again, blood-washed, justified freely by His grace believers? How should we live? Should it affect our lives? 
And he started, of course, we saw in verse number one with that kind of an all-encompassing statement. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And everything that he said from that point on in chapter 12 is building on that or explaining that. That's maybe the theme of even what we're looking at here in these verses. How then... Should we live? Well, according to that, we should live presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. According to that, we should live differently from the world, not conforming to the world. According to that, we should be transformed from within by the Holy Spirit of God, and it should affect everything we do. If we were a little bit further in chapter 12, we found out that He has given us gifts, gifts of the Spirit, and that helps us to live and to serve in His church and amongst His people. Well, now in this last half of the chapter, I think he's getting even more practical. He gives some instruction that applies to every one of us equally. There's not a single verse that I read here that just applies to preachers. There's not a single verse here that just applies to elders or deacons or any other particular group. Everybody who names the name of Christ, you could put your name in front of every one of these verses that I just read because they apply to every single one of us. This is a list of attitudes and behaviors that should characterize all Christians, how then should we live? Well, let's just look at a couple of them today. Let's look, first of all, at the very first verse we read, verse number 9. And let's notice this. A Christian should be genuine. A Christian should be genuine. See what it says? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Let Love. Isn't that interesting that when he's going to talk about how we should live, the very first thing he talks about is love. Love. Everything starts with love. Jesus one time was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he said? Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments, saying all the law and the prophets. Everything about the Christian life starts with love, doesn't it? Everything about our behaviors and our attitudes ought to be driven by love. But that's an interesting word. The world has a particular view of what that word means. But the Bible has a completely different view of what that world, that word means. Love as defined in the Bible is not the same as the love portrayed by the world. It is not a feeling. It's not something warm and fuzzy. Love, as defined in the Bible, is a choice. Love, as defined in the Bible, is a commitment. It has parameters. And we're going to see a couple of them here, which might be somewhat surprising. The world is out of control right now because of this strange belief that if I love you, I will never say anything you don't like. Have you noticed that? The world is going nuts because we have that complete confusion about what love is. If I believe anything you disagree with, or if I think something you love is sinful, well, I must not love you. That's, that's not biblical love. Africa is ridiculous. Completely ridiculous, according to Scripture. This verse says genuine love has certain characteristics. It says, first of all, it is, it is real, it is genuine. But it also says it abhors that which is evil. That's interesting. It also says it clings to that which is good. Those are things that define the love that Paul is talking about. Here. Rick Warren has a quote. You've probably read this quote many times on social media because it gets quoted there a lot. But he said this. He said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. 
The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. And the second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions in order to be compassionate. And as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says here that if you are compassionate, if you do love as Christians are supposed to love, it will be demonstrated. He says here in these three ways, it will be demonstrated by the genuineness of your love, by the abhorrence of evil, and by clinging to that which is good. It's interesting to note that those two words, abhor and cling, are actually participles in the Greek, which means they modify the original. We might read, I think more accurately, uh, we might read this verse as, let love be without hypocrisy, abhorring that which is evil and clinging to that which is good. So both of those things modify the word love. A couple of interesting words there, don't you think? Abhor. Interesting word. We're going to talk about that for a second. And cling. Actually, if you're holding a King James Bible this morning, it says cleave. That's one of my favorite words in the King James Bible. I think it's actually better here. Cleave. And we'll talk to that. We abhor that which is evil. We cling to that which is good. Well, let's examine some of these words here just, just briefly and see what we can learn from them. First of all, let's talk about that word love. You know, it is a key word in the Bible. It's a key word for us as believers. There are four Greek words in the Bible that are all translated love. There are four Greek words in the, in the Greek language which are translated love. I don't think all of these are in the Bible. I think one is missing. But there is the Greek word storges, which is familial love, the love of family. There is the Greek word philios, which is brotherly love. It's from that that we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, because that's what philios means. There is eros, which is sexual love. I don't think that one appears in the Bible. And then there is agape, which is godly love. And it's that latter word that's used right here, the love of God, love like God. And we really don't need anything else. I mean, if, if that's all Paul had said, love like God loves, that would be enough. He wouldn't have to really explain anything else, even though he goes on and does. But we ought to love like God does. So how does God love? What is agape love? Well, we could go to the chapter in the Bible that defines agape love. We could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we could see what it says. It says there in verses 4 through 8 that love, God's love, suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. You ever really think about that passage? Do you ever compare that to how you love others? It's near impossible for us to live up to that, but it's the goal. And it's the description of God's love, and that's how we are to love, like God loves. Well, he goes on. He explains a little bit more. He gives, uses another word here. He uses the word hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's a translation of the Greek word anupokritos. And you can figure out where we get the word hypocrisy from. Hypocritos. It's basically a transliteration. I, I like the way Boyce explains this in his commentary. He says this. He says, anupokritos means without a mask. And it refers to the way in which in the Greek theater, actors would carry tragic, comic, or melodramatic masks to signal the role they were playing. When Paul tells us that love is to be an-hypocritical or not-hypocritical, 
He is saying that those who love are not to play a role, but rather are to be genuine. In other words, we're to get off the stage and drop our masks, end quote. And so we're, we're to be real in loving one another. We're not to pretend to love when we don't really love. We're not to fake it. Does that ever happen? Surely it doesn't happen. Surely Christians don't ever just pretend to love others, do they? Do any of us ever really just put on an act pretending to love when we don't mean it? Do any of us wear such a mask of love, but if we remove the mask, we'd find there's really no <laughs> love underneath? He says that's not to be. He uses another word here, a very interesting word. He uses the word abhor. You know what abhor means? It means hate. Hate. And it's so rendered in some English versions of the Bible. So now, now think about this a minute. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying if we have a real, a genuine, and not hypocritical love, it will show up in hate. What? Doesn't that seem a little strange to you? That's what he's saying. Again, I like what this commentator said. He said, some people, for some people, it may come as a shock to discover the word hate immediately after the words love must be sincere. First love, then hate. The two seem incompatible to most of us, but they are not. And their juxtaposition in this verse teaches an important truth. Love must be discriminating. Real love doesn't love everything. On the contrary, it hates what is evil and clings to what is good. If we love as God loves, then we also hate as God hates. And again, I can imagine the questions coming up. What? God hates? I thought God was love. Well, He is. But there are some verses that would indicate to us that there are some things God hates. How about Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16? These six things the Lord hates. That's pretty clear. There's at least six things. Oh, wait. Seven are an abomination to Him. There's at least seven things that God hates. He hates a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. How about Isaiah chapter 1? When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. How about Amos chapter 5 and verse 21? I hate. I hate. I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. I imagine there's others. I didn't look up every single place where it talks about things God hates, but those are some that jump right out at us. God hates some things. It's important to realize God doesn't hate people. God loves people. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But He hates evil. He hates things that are evil. According to those verses, he hates pride. He hates dishonesty, murder, evil plotting and scheming, the propensity to choose evil over good. He hates divided hearts. He hates hypocrisy in worship. He hates formal activities of worship that don't spring from genuine hearts of worship. He hates those things. And if that's how God hates, according to our verse here, that's how we will hate too. If we are energized by godly love, we'll love the people and things God loves and we'll abhor or hate the things God hates. 
Let love be without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil. Is that you? Another word he uses here is the word cling. Or as I mentioned, it's rendered cleave in the King James Bible. I like it better. It's such a picturesque word. You know, that's how marriage is defined in the book of Genesis. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It's a very picturesque word, isn't it? I've always liked the word. One source that I was studying said that uh, this particular Greek word could be uh, rendered glued. Glued. Apparently, uh, the, it, it has the same root or something. And it made me think, you know, some years ago, uh, I built a house in which I now live. We moved into that house in 1995. And I remember move-in day. Move-in day was an exciting day. And we were all hauling boxes in there and all kinds of stuff. Very exciting. However... I had procrastinated on a couple of things, and there was a few tasks that were not yet done. And so while boxes were being carried in, I was frantically trying to get some things done. And one of the things was I had not yet mounted the vanity in the downstairs half bath. So while the boxes are coming in, we're in the process of moving in. I'm in there mounting the vanity. I had to screw the vanity to the wall, so I pulled out my handy-dandy stud finder. And I found a stud, and I sunk this nice long screw. And I had this nice, satisfying feeling as that vanity snugged up against the wall. But you know what? Nobody ever told me that stud finders will also find water lines. And so I heard this strange sound. Brand new house. Never been lived in for a minute. And water is pouring down through the wall and splattering all over everything. There was some frantic activity, let me tell you, as we managed to get that figured out. Well, you know, from that moment on, I was terrified to touch that wall. You'd think from then on I would know where the water line was, but it didn't matter. I was terrified to touch that wall. I was not going to put another nail in there. I was not going to put another screw in that wall. So there was this big piece of baseboard along the bottom that never got nailed up. It was just standing there against the wall. That drove Beth nuts. She'd go in there and she'd bump that thing and it'd fall over. And for, you know, years, she would very kindly come up to me and she would say, Oh, baby, will you just fix the stupid piece of baseboard? Would you just nail it? And I'd say, oh, yeah, I'm going to get to that. But I wouldn't do it. One day I walked into that bathroom, and there was something different in the bathroom. And I looked at that piece of baseboard. I thought, what, what is up with that piece of baseboard? It had this stuff oozing out of the top of it. Somebody, who shall remain nameless, had gone in there with Gorilla Glue... And had glued that piece of baseboard. Now, let me tell you something. If you try to take that piece of baseboard off there now, you might as well just take the whole wall down. Because it is cleaving to that wall. It is glued to that wall. It will never move. And every time I think about this word cleave, or when I think about the fact that it could mean glue, I think about that. That's, that's a good picture to me of what Paul says here about how our attitude ought to be toward good things. We are to hate evil, but we are to cleave to that which is good. We're to be glued to it, just like Gorilla Glue. And you know, this teaching, this kind of thinking, it's not unique here. It's, it's all throughout the Scripture. The psalmist said it in Psalm 34 and verse 14. He said, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Paul said to the Thessalonians, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And there are many other places we could look at. So how then should we as Christians live? Well, we should be genuine in our love. We should not be faking it. We should not be wearing a mask. We should not be hypocritical. We should love as God loves. We should hate what is evil. 
and we should cleave to what is good. Does that describe you? Does it describe you? Well, let's notice another verse. Let's notice verse number 10, where I think we read that Christians should love Christians. Christians should love Christians. Be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Another interesting verse. Two interesting words used there. The word Philadelphia is there. I mentioned that one earlier. And the word Philostorgos is there. I mentioned a part of that one earlier. And so we get two interesting thoughts. Paul's saying here that we ought to love one another like brothers and sisters, and we ought to love one another like family. How then should we live? Well, we ought to be living loving Christians like family and putting their needs, their well-being, and their honor ahead of our own. Now, I can't speak to everybody's hearts, but you know what? I think some Christians fall down here. I think I've seen it. I think you've seen it. I think there are Christians who would gladly choose to spend their time with worldly friends and ignore Christian family. You ever know anybody like that? I think we see it from time to time. When an opportunity to be with Christians is weighed against an opportunity to be with, you know, worldly friends, work buddies, something like that. For some folks, the, uh, the latter seems to win out. And I wonder how that fits with verse number 10. Thankfully, it's not a universal problem, but it certainly is one we've all seen. Christians should love Christians. I'm not making this up. Uh, it's not my, this is not my words. That's what it says. Verse number 10. Christians should love Christians. Christians should prefer Christians. Isn't that what it says? I'm not, I didn't make it up. And to live differently is to ignore the teaching here in Romans. But even more ominously, to live differently than that, if you're the type of a person who just doesn't want to be around other Christians, well, according to the book of 1 John, your very salvation experience is called into question. You say, what? Well, let me read it to you. John said, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 2, 9-11. He comes back and hammers that again a little bit later in the same letter. He says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. In other words, here's how to tell who's saved and who's lost. That's what he's saying. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteousness or righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Those are serious verses. Scary verses. If we don't have within us a preference for believers. So where are you with respect to these things? Do you like Christians? Do you like your brothers and sisters in Christ? you want to be with them? Do you prefer them? Or do you just tolerate them on Sunday mornings? There are seven days in a week. There are all kinds of activities that could be taken, you could be taking part of. We have all kinds of things that go on around here, and there's other, other Christian activities outside of here. Uh, where are you at? Do you prefer to be around believers? Or would you rather be with the lost world? You see, you know the answers to these things, and I don't want to hammer it. I'm not trying to beat people up. I just think it's interesting. We're to prefer one another. And remember how this section started. You can't be a fake. You can't be a hypocrite. You know in your heart of hearts whether this is true. 
You can't hide it from yourself. You can't hide it from God. You know where you stand. So how then should we live? Well, according to this, we should live a life that reflects a genuine love for one another. We Christians should genuinely love each other. We should prefer each other. We should desire to be with other believers. And again, it's not just here. It's all throughout the New Testament. How about John chapter 13? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How about 13, uh, Hebrews 13 and verse number 1? Let brotherly love continue. Or 1 Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the king. Or Philippians chapter 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out, out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So is that true of you? Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Now, before we get off this one, I, th- I think he touches on this a couple times throughout this section. And I think one of the places he touches on it is in verse number 13. So look down at that where it talks about the fact in verse 13 that we are to be distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. I, I think that might be a verse that kind of tells us what verse 10 looks like. If we are kindly affection to one another, what does it look like? I think maybe those two things fit in here. It'll, uh, it'll show itself in our generosity, distributing to the needs of the saints. It'll show itself in our hospitality, opening our homes and lives to others. I think both of those things are demonstrations of our love. Sometime back, Pastor Phil gave me a copy of a little book. It's called The Hospitality Commands. It's by Alexander Strzok. It's a good book, and I, I recommend it. And it describes in very convicting detail how if we're living our faith as Christians, you know, our, our homes, our lives will be open. We will be hospitable to others. And I think that's exactly what Paul is saying right here. Uh, we should be given to hospitality. Well, one last one. Let's look at verse number 11, and then we'll be done for today. The third truth I see here is that a Christian should diligently serve Christ. Diligently serve. Verse number 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. How then should we live as Christians? Well, I see a negative thought here, and I also see a positive one. He says we should be serving the Lord. That's the main thought uh, of the verse. But the other two phrases modify it. We, We might translate it as we should serve the Lord not lazily. That's the negative thought. But fervently, that's the positive thought. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We studied Nehemiah a few years ago. I don't know if, if you remember that, and some of you weren't here back then when we studied it. But uh, there was, a, there was a, a somewhat amusing part in the book of Nehemiah. I, I always find it amusing. Uh, Nehemiah is talking about the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem, if you remember the, the topic of that book. And in one particular place, in chapter 3, he's listing this, all these different groups of people and how they worked on, uh, on the wall and where they worked and what they did. There's this one particular part that he couldn't help but crack on a little bit, this one group of people. Here's what he said. Uh, basically, he was saying they were lazy. Here's what he said. Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse number 5. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. They were lazy. They didn't put their shoulders to the work. You know, every once in a while I think about my tombstone. You ever think about your tombstone? 
And what's going to be on it? It's a moot point for me now because mine's already sitting over there in Hillside Cemetery. What's on it's on it. But nonetheless, we think about our epitaph, don't we, from time to time. And, uh, you know, they're what we would like people to remember us as. How many of you would like to have on there, he did not put his shoulders to the work of the Lord? Would you like to have that on there? Or, he was lazy in his service for Christ. Would you like to have that on None of us want that on there. No, laziness ought not be the way a Christian lives. Rather, we ought to serve God fervently. That's what he says here. Our service ought not to be marked by laziness, by just doing enough to get by. Our service should be fervent. There's another interesting word. That word fervent there is used only twice in the New Testament. You know what it means? It means boiling. We ought to be serving God boiling hot. That's the way we should be. The only other place it's used was of Apollos in Acts chapter 18 and verse 25. He was boiling in his zeal for Christ. What about you? You boiling? You on fire for Christ? That's what he's saying you ought to be. And you know what? Most of us start that way, don't we? Most of us, when we first get saved, we are completely and totally on fire for Christ. We can't tell enough people. We can't share it with enough. We can't serve enough. We can't be in church enough. We can't read our Bibles enough. We are literally boiling for Christ. And then, you know, as time comes on, the the boil starts to go down and then it becomes a little simmer. Some just seem to lose their fervor completely. You can look into your heart right now and you can assess some things. Are you boiling for Jesus? Are you on fire? Because that's how Paul says we ought to live. Serving Him, not lazily. Not lacking in diligence. Boiling hot. Well, I'm going to stop. We're going to look at some more of these verses next week, Lord willing. But we have plenty to think about and pray about. Just consider the first three, don't we? How then should we live as Christians? Well, let's sum it up. We should live lives characterized by love. Genuine love. Non-hypocritical love. Not faked love. And we'll recognize such a love because it will love what God loves and hate what God hates. And we should live lives that give preference to other Christians. We should love other Christians like brothers, like sisters, like family. We should prefer them. We should put their needs ahead of our own. We should give to meet their lack. The doors not only of our hearts but of our homes, should be open to them. And finally, we should live lives that center around serving the one who served us so generously on the cross. We should serve the Savior, not half-hearted, not lazily, but fervently, on fire, boiling for Jesus. Is that you?